You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. Thank you for listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. Today we are joined by Gene Barr, the author of A Civil War Captain and His Lady, Love, Courtship, and Combat from Fort Donelson through the Vicksburg Campaign. Gene, thank you for joining me. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, Gene, this is a book. uh, At its base, there are 70, uh, at its center, there are 75 letters uh, exchanged between uh, a young man, Josiah Moore, and a young woman, uh, Jenny Lindsay, Jane Lindsay. Um, You came across these letters um, before we get into the theme of the book, some of the themes, uh, can you tell us a little about the letters, how you came across them, and uh, what you ended up doing with them? Sure. I had a call from a guy I used to work with in a previous occupation, and he had inherited a cabin on a lake in Wisconsin, an unheated cabin. Uh, I think it was Lake George, Rhinelander, Wisconsin. I said, hey, I found a bunch of stuff in here. I think I got Civil War letters, and I, I know you're interested in that stuff. Can you look at it. Actually, he asked, he asked me if I could sell them for him. And I said, ship them over. I'll tell you what you have. So I looked at them, realized indeed they were Civil War letters. Um, and it was some type of correspondence without having dug into them too deeply. I couldn't see immediately. And so I talked to a, f- a few dealers about whether they would want them. And I got lowballed. Two of them said I had to leave them with them so they could read through. Well, they're not my letters. I couldn't do that. And uh, eventually I came to realize that uh, when I talked to the one dealer, he, was, he didn't want the woman's letters, didn't want, there were some post-war letters, so there's a little bit of a spoiler alert, post-war letters. Right, um, right. That uh, he only wanted the soldier letters. And I knew what he's going to do. He's going to take the ones that had the best headings, like, you know, from the battlefield of Vicksburg, from Pittsburgh Landing, which of course is Shiloh, and sell those. And I realized that once that's broken up, you never put that story back together. And I realized there was a human story as part of what we're looking at here. So I kind of bit the bullet, no pun intended, and I bought the letters and the other material that came with it. A lot of other material came with it. Uh, so so you, you knew there was a story to tell, and, and once those letters were broken up, it would be impossible to create it. Um, so you never had any intention of writing this book. You know, it's, that's an interesting point. I really didn't. It kind of dawned on me kind of at one point, well, maybe this would be pretty good. And I think one of the things that really pushed it to me was, my daughter attended the same college I did in Philadelphia and wound up with the same history professor that I did in Philadelphia. And she took some of the letters early on and in her Civil War course did a, a small paper on it. And the professor saw it and said, w- where'd you get these letters? And she told him, and she, he said, well, tell your daddy he has to write a book about this, which started to grow that seed a little bit. Well, you know, if Dr. Miller thinks that, that there's a book here, maybe I ought to pay a little more attention to that. Right. So um, what are some of the themes of your book? I mean, obviously, at its core, like I said, there's a love story. I mean, so it's yeah. something there for, say, my mom, uh, who might not even be a Civil War enthusiast. Um, you talk about—I guess we'll start with um, Illinois and so the political backdrop. Uh, Josiah Moore—well, uh, he's, he's an Irish immigrant. Irish immigrant, correct. Um, and uh, Jenny Lindsay is uh, a, 
a, a native of Peoria, Illinois. Native of Peoria. Um, her father is a prominent Very Democratic pro politician. Well, he was a Republican. He Re was a member of the Whig Party, turned okay. Republican, turned Democrat. So okay. he has an interesting political history. So, so get into that a little bit, uh, Illinois and the politics Well, there. Illinois and politics was interesting. Uh, it was, despite having looked at this, studied this in college, and studied the Civil War for decades, of course, most of us who study this, I think you're probably the same. You, we tend to focus on the bigger pictures. We focus on Gettysburg and Antietam and Fredericksburg. And in this area particularly, people tend to focus on the Eastern Theater. This book being Western Theater is slightly different. Um, but one of the things that, that fascinated me was we make the assumption all the time that it was North versus South. And yeah, we knew Maryland was a border state in Missouri. But wh what I came to realize is that there was significant dissension even within other states. For example, the mayor of New York City at the beginning of the war Wood. wanted to just keep New York City out of it, stay neutral, because, ah, well, we do business with both sides. So you had that, you had issues in Pennsylvania, and you had issues, clear issues in Illinois, particularly southern Illinois, that was composed of a lot of people who had come into the state from southern states, had a strong pro-southern feel, the northern part of the state, a lot of immigrants pro-northern, pro-union side. So the central part of the state was kind of this mixture of both. So, you know, Josiah finds himself going to training camp in Peoria with his men, thrust into this swirling conflict of north versus south in the middle of Illinois in Peoria, which interesting people, again, would assume, well, Peoria, uh, Illinois, uh, voted twice against Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and 1864. His home state, one of the biggest cities, Peoria, was not a fan of Abraham Lincoln. Wow. And you say in the book only a small percentage of Union soldiers supported abolition at the start of uh, the conflict, but the level grew, um, especially when soldiers realized that ending slavery meant depriving the South of an important resource. So one of the, uh, the other themes of your book is there's an evolution that takes place um, throughout the war uh, generally and also in sort of the, the, the letters that are going back and forth between Josiah and uh, Jenny. Absolutely. I think that's, that's exactly right. You see the evolution, and most of the evolution came about from a pragmatic basis. Northern troops joined, the overwhelming majority joined simply to keep the Union, to support the Union, to keep the Union together. Uh, very, very few were outright abolitionists. Oliver Otis Howard, famous general of the war, was one notable exception. There were a few others, but not many. But as they went through, they saw what slave labor meant to the Southern cause, such that when Lincoln decided to issue his Emancipation Proclamation, most of the soldiers had come in behind it. Again, not because they were now wholly on the side of, of the blacks who had been enslaved, but simply because they said, he's right. This is, a, this is a war aim, and we're with them. Now, even then, not everybody was with them. They wound up sending, for example, I know one regiment from Illinois home who basically revolted against that. Um, but again, it was interesting to watch, to watch that change. But again, it was overwhelmingly, I would say, for pragmatic reasons as opposed to a, wow, slavery is really evil. Some did come to see it. Some, as they traveled through the South, saw the, the horrors of it, the families broken up and sold, the beatings, et cetera. But most just said, yeah, it's a great way of ending the war early. Right. Um, so Josiah and Jenny, we don't know exactly where or how they met. I mean, I, I think we can maybe assume it, it was when he was in camp in Peoria. Absolutely. Uh, and he sort of joined the 17th Illinois in a very dramatic way. Uh, which is great. You get the book, you'll, you'll see it. It's a yes. great scene. It's a great uh, story. It really is. Yeah. Um, and so what happens next? And I think here I'm trying to get at what, 
what did courtship look like in the 19th century? And uh, did their sort of uh, initial exchange of letters, that's, that was sort of pretty standard for the day? Well, standard, but also very formalized. For example, how they, I don't know exactly how the two met. During my research, I did all my own research traveling to Illinois, Vicksburg, etc. Um, I, I did a little checking on what the customs of the time were. And under the customs of the time, and it was very rigorous and very formalized how a man and a woman might meet each other. You couldn't walk up and say, hi, my name is. That would be considered incredibly rude, and you would be dismissed immediately. So you had to find someone, if you saw an attractive woman, you had to find someone who knew that woman, and you had to politely ask them if they would agree to introduce you to her. And then even before you could correspond, you had to get permission to send the young lady letters. And keep in mind, there was an eight-year difference between their ages, right. too. So that probably complicated things a little. Not, not horribly. She, she was 19, 19 when they met. He was 27. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yes, he was an Irish immigrant, but had come here as an infant, so, so knew very little, I think, of his native he, Ireland. He was from Northern Ireland. Uh, for all intents and purposes, he was American. In fact, on the muster-in sheet, which I own, the original muster-in sheet, he listed his nativity as U.S., Right. Okay. And he, he's six four. Six four. He, big guy. Tall guy. The time. Probably fair to say. Maybe even handsome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking at her picture. She was 19. Dark hair. Came from a from a well well to do family. Well dressed, as you can see from yeah, the picture absolutely. on the cover. Yeah. Um, and so they meet and they begin exchanging letters. Yes. Um, after yeah, of, he was likely given permission to send her letters. Yes. And then. Um, they don't meet again for a very long time. About 18 months. Wow. Yeah. About 18 months. He, he, he leaves in June of 61 to go to the war. Things are picking up out there, and he leaves and is gone for an extended period of time. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the mail system. I mean, so they, they send letters, but often, I mean, as you could imagine, it's, sure. it's, 18, it's the 1860s. There's a war going on. Um, but letters don't get to where they're supposed to, you know, in a timely fashion. Uh, he often receives uh, letters out of order. Um, yes. Uh, talk a little bit about how did that work? I mean, and she often didn't know where he was. I mean, he would write a letter from one place and then move to another. How would the, the letter eventually get to him? Well, they eventually track him down by finding out where his particular Army of the Tennessee was, his corps, division, brigade, regiment, etc., what I found fascinating was, you're exactly right, there were a lot of times when mail was slow because they were traveling. I mean, this is a unit out of Illinois, and they went first down into northern Kentucky, parts of Missouri, then they traveled into Tennessee, then they're in Louisiana, then they're finally in Mississippi. And when they're traveling, it is tough. It's hard to track them down. But what was fascinating was, I did a little research on some other letters that I had found it's incredible what's still out there tucked away in libraries in different places in this country and the guy who commanded major Pete's commanded the regiment at the battle of vicksburg had exchanged letters with his wife once the mississippi was open it was about a five-day turnaround six-day turnaround it's incredible Mm -hmm. so once they stayed in a place and so that shows that the mail all the time could be pretty efficient and it shows something else that was important reinforces the importance that was attached to opening up the Mississippi to transport. Once that was open and those letters and those ships could steam up river to go back to Illinois, it was pretty quick. And and the letters meant a lot, not just to Josiah and Jenny, but the 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 morale boost um, that the letters would uh, would give to the soldiers and to her and to and to other women on the home front can't be 
understated. Absolutely. But, that's uh, that's how you communicate it. There's clearly, yeah. obviously, no such thing as cell phones, right, no such right. thing as Skyping. <laughs> this was how you communicated. And interestingly, your, your value and your stature as an individual was, right or wrong, was measured by how well you could write. And so you see in the letters each of them kind of apologizing for this poor letter because that was how you were measured, mm-hmm. your, your level of communication. And you're absolutely right in that this is what the men wanted. The men wanted to know people at home were fine. People at home wanted to know that their loved one in the service, the father, the, the brother, the son, was safe as well. Uh, one of the things that didn't make it into the book, because not everything makes it in, of course, you have editors and then the publisher, I had made some comparisons between how men in the Civil War versus men in, say, the Second World War treated letters, and it was incredible how similar they were how very similar it was, which keep in mind, still, this, it was basically that level of communication right, still. Right. Men, even you know, 80 years later, still wanted to know the same things. Wow. Um, now, 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 while we're talking about the letters and the pride that they had in their writing, like you said, I mean, they, they would write this beautiful letter and then would apologize at the end that, you know, maybe it wasn't uh, good enough. Um, they were incredible writers. Yes. I mean, it, 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 it makes me jealous in terms of, you know, I can't, couldn't write like that if I if I really tried. Um, did that strike you? I mean, th- th- I mean, a passage from Jenny to Josiah uh, in February 1862, and this is just one of a right. passage from one of 75 letters. The present looks dark and dreary, with only a slight gleam of sunshine when hope predominates over memory, and whispering the sweet resolution of a future where sorrow and sadness will be unknown. And all will be peace and happiness. Yes. That's incredible. The letters are really like poetry when you look at them. And again, she's striving to establish her, hate to say her self-worth, but her but her value. They were both clearly, well, I know he was well-educated because he, when he enlisted, he came in from Monmouth, Monmouth College yep. in Illinois. I don't have any history of what her education was, but I would assume that given that she was the daughter of one of Peoria's leading citizens, she probably had some private tutoring in in addition to whatever other school she had. So she writes incredibly well. Both of them write very, very well. Um, There's a, you have to get into the flow of it when I, because I transcribed every single letter. And it's also important to note, which I appreciate what the publisher did, every single word of every letter is in the book. Yes, Nothing was edited, because I think you need that to give you the full picture of what they both were, to give you that sense of what was important to both of them. So so he left both in. But but the letters are really like poetry. The only thing is, a couple times she drove me crazy, because most of them are four pages. A couple times she ran out of paper, so she turned the paper sideways and started writing on the back page, so I had to <laughs> decipher those. Uh, made for a little bit of a challenge yeah, in a couple of the letters. Well, talk about that a little bit. I mean, I'm assuming you transcribed all the letters. I transcribed every single so letter. So you had the physical one. letters in front of you. Yes. What kind of challenge is that? I mean, I, I've done a little bit of translating some old letters. I mean, it's not easy. Right. It It's tough. Fortunately, they were kept in pretty good shape. I mean, they weren't, even though they were in this cabin for I don't know how long, they weren't just strewn about the cabin. Someone had taken care of them. They were in plastic sleeves in a, kind of an old binder type thing. It looked like it dated to the 60s maybe. So someone had taken care of these. Now, the first thing I did was take them out of that plastic and put them into what I knew to be acid-free to protect them. But they hadn't been damaged. They hadn't been gnawed on by rodents. There wasn't really much water damage to them. Um, And almost every single word was legible. I would say, and it comes through in the book, maybe half a dozen words out of all 75, Mm -hmm. I just could not figure out what they were saying. 
Uh, interestingly, there were two cases where sections of the letter were cut out, and I have no idea why. I, I, I suspect why. I think one of them I know had to do with Louisiana, and Josiah was talking about some of the men potentially involved in something they shouldn't be, so whether he wrote it, thought better, and cut the letter out, whether he sent it to Jenny, who saw that and said, well, I don't want Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so ever seeing that. I right. want to cut that out. Or maybe when Josiah got home, he took them and cut it out. But there are sections very deliberately, not torn, they're very carefully cut out of two of the letters. Okay. Now, the way that this book is sort of set up, you're constantly going back and forth from the very big to the very small. So you're, you know, uh, chapter six, which is titled, Your Noble Boy is No More. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, a, it's a line taken from one of Josiah's letters where he's writing home to a, a friend's parents that... Uh, their child, their their son was lost. It, was it, killed. Was killed at the Battle of Donaldson. At the four, yep, a fellow student at Monmouth. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, but you start the chapter off. You've got to set up the battle, of course. Exactly. So, so you're talking exactly. about Grant and Sherman, and right. and and so, and then you're, and then very seamlessly, you're going from the very big to the very small, and how this, what this means for Josiah. Can yes. you talk a little bit about the approach? Yeah, I put a lot of thought into that. Because what I didn't want to do is, I mean, one option would be just transcribe the letters, throw the letters together, and you, Nick, can read them and make out whatever you want from right. them. Right. Or I could put them a little bit in context and say on, in, you know, January of 1862, the 17th moved here, here's two letters that happened as part of that. But I wanted to make something more out of it. And the other thing that hit me was I kind of said, look, this was a tremendous gift, a tremendous opportunity. I ne- had never written a book before this. <laughs> to be blunt, I didn't want to blow it. So I said, what's, what's the most valuable contribution I could make with this? So in my view, the most valuable contribution would be to look at these two as kind of symbolic of other people of the time, their struggles from 1861 to 65, and see how I could delve more into them to fully develop those two characters and talk a little bit about what what their hopes and fears were and what were the context that they were in. So so I really go much more into depth than just simply saying, here's the letters, or on this day he went from here to here, go read the letter, and hopefully you'll figure it out. So I did want people to understand the full context, such that when he says the word Pittsburgh Landing, what does that mean, and what were the horrors that he saw, and what was going on in Jenny's head and the family back home? Um, so, and, and it works really, I mean, it comes across, I mean, as a story. I mean, this is, this is a, a great yeah. story. Um, and I think the context is important to, to establish, um, you know, what Josiah is going through, what Jenny's going through. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there are tribulations on the home front. Absolutely. You know, for her, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I think it's important to note, and this was, again, another fascinating piece of it for me, because, again, those of us, particularly men, we want to go in and, you know, this regiment went into line here on this date at this time, and they did this without thinking too much about what happened on the home front. But as I dug into that and tried to find some scholarly work that I could draw upon for that, a couple things became pretty clear. One, there's a distinction between, say, northern women and southern women, or northern people who stayed home versus southern, but let's focus on women for a minute. Where in the north, in a place like Peoria, for someone like Jenny, who is fairly well-to-do, uh, has most of most if not all of what she needs life kind of went on except for the fact she's worried about Josiah and worried about a brother who winds up joining the 77th Illinois in the south 
quite different if you're on the home front. You're, you're worried about being invaded. I mean, if you're in the north, with a few exceptions, 1862, Maryland, um, 1863, Gettysburg in the area of south-central Pennsylvania, down where I live, 1864, Chambersburg. I mean, there were very few excursions, southern Illinois, you know, down in southern Ohio. But you didn't have armies camped out in your front yard, unlike the people in Virginia, Tennessee, 64 through Georgia, very different. And even in the North, there was a difference between, say, a woman who was left having to work the family farm because her husband and maybe her oldest son were away, and she is stuck with an extensive amount of physical labor to keep the family surviving. And you read some of those letters and they just rip your heart apart about, you have to come home, I can't keep doing this, I'm just killing myself with this. So the home front differed a bit depending on who you were and where you were. Mm -hmm. Well, and another great thing about your book is, of course, here we are, we're following Josiah from, uh, from Missouri to Mississippi, um, and simultaneously, we're also back in Peoria. I mean, yes. this, you know, the, the connections and, and how you can see how one thing affects another thing. It's, it's, really, it's really great. Um, religion, mm -hmm. uh, another big theme of your book. Can you talk about how, uh, what, it what religion meant to Jenny, what it meant to Josiah, and what it meant to their relationship, and how it changed over yes. the course of the war? Religion was pretty important for a whole lot of people during the period, mm -hmm. arguably probably a bit more than it is now. Uh, they were both very religious people, both Presbyterian. Uh, Josiah, again, we, we should look at the spoiler alert. Spoiler he, alert does, yeah. he does survive because he becomes a Presbyterian yep. minister, mm -hmm. so quite obviously his faith is critically important to him. And as you look at the letters, so too it is with Jenny. She talks about regularly attending church, her hope in God, that God will bring an end to this. And there was a great quote from a book by George Rabel, on religion in the war, and he said, for people in the Civil War, the religion was both wind and weather vane. That is, their views determined their views, thoughts on the war, and vice versa. And it was a very interesting way of looking at it. But their religion comes through all the time. Their faith in God, you only see one or two times when Josiah's faith, not necessarily in God, but faith in the war effort flags a little bit, but then but then it picks up again. So his religion quite clearly carried him through. It carried him above some of the worst of what he experienced, and I think served him, from his perspective, extremely well for his service period. And I think some of his, and I'd have to go back and look, but some of the loss of faith in the war effort, even though they were brief, that have to do with some of the, the peace Democrats sort of gaining some, some uh, you know, gaining some traction in the North. Can you talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure. I think there were a couple times. Her father that, was involved as yeah, well. Her, yeah, her father became, he was a Republican member of the Illinois House, mm -hmm. became a Democrat member of the Illinois Senate, and became one of Illinois' most predominant Peace Democrats or Copperheads. Mm -hmm. And in terms of Josiah's kind of flagging, one of the times was, yes, he, he clearly didn't view Copperheads positively, although interestingly, he certainly knew Jenny's dad was getting this reputation, but I think decided to err on the part of uh, continuing the courtship and didn't 
go after Jen. He didn't mention anything derogatory about her dad. He wrote about very negatively about the Peace Democrats in his letters, but never said, and your dad is one of them. He just <laughs> left that, he kind of left that part out of it. His, uh, I, I'd say Josiah was down as many men were in the uh, spring of 63. In fact, one historian has declared the spring of 63 as the, as the Union Army's Valley Forge. For in the East, it wasn't going well because Fredericksburg had happened, spirits were down, and in the West, it seemed like they were going to be stuck in Louisiana forever and never be able to capture Vicksburg. And you can kind of see that that downwards, that kind of down spirit in some of Josiah's letters. But then they pick up again when when conditions and when prospects improve. Right. Um, now, you mentioned in a previous uh, uh, event that you did. Uh, that I watched on C-SPAN, which was great. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> that there are some there are some sources in in this book that were previously unpublished. Yes. Not just the letters. Correct. Uh, you talk a little bit about that having to do with Shiloh, having to do with a couple of other uh, battles. Yeah, there's a couple things. First off, the one that did make, in addition to the letters, which quite clearly no one had ever done anything with. Yeah, I was right. the first one. But included with that, there was a ten-page handwritten. Uh, memorandum turns out to be from Jenny's father, who as state senator traveled with the governor of Illinois and watched the Union gunboats and transports run the Vicksburg defenses. And he watched that from Ulysses Grant's headquartership. He talks about standing there with him. So that's unpublished and of course has never been out before. But in addition to that, and kind of hunting around for other things, I found, as I kind of hinted earlier, some material from Major Frank Peets that was in a small library outside Chicago. And it's amazing, you know, as everyone knows, just kind of periodically I would Google 17th Illinois and just see what would come back. Well, one Mm -hmm. time this came back. And Peets was at one point before he was major, he was a captain of one of the 17th other companies. He wrote this incredible account of Forts Henry and Donaldson, never, never published before. His view of what he saw in Henry and Donaldson and extensive i mean just complete complete listing and a complete dialogue on that entire campaign and there was nothing else that was there i would hope that he would have continued this but he just wrote it on henry and donaldson Hmm. now it does some of it picks up later with some letters correspondence between he and his wife that are in the collection as well that were very important and helped illuminate a lot of the vicksburg experience for the men but it's just unbelievable. That stuff is still out there. There is still stuff in attics and libraries all throughout this country. And unfortunately, a lot has been lost. Yes, some has been published. A lot has been lost, but there's still stuff out there. Well, when we talked about that before we started recording about, you know, so many, there are so many battle books out there and, you know, not to pick on Pickett's Charge, but we're going to get another book about Pickett's Charge. But there are so many things that are underexplored. uh, And one of them is the post-war experience yes. for soldiers. Yes. Uh, and you get into that a little bit uh, towards the end of your book. Uh, obviously, we've already given away that Josiah survives and becomes a, a minister. Uh, talk about his post-war experience and the post-war experience of so many soldiers. I mean, you make some comparisons to soldiers after Viet- the Vietnam yes. War. You know, that's a great point. And I think what, what sparked me to do it, I was down at the National Archives, and I was in, I forget which soldier's file I was in, and I find this account of one of the men in Josiah's unit who had gone off to one of the USCT, U.S. Colored Troop units, and it described his suicide. 
And I said, well, that's strange. Here's the guy survives, and he's near the end of the war, and he kills himself. Began digging into it a little bit, found letters written by this individual, and it's talked about in the book. Mm -hmm. And he talks about being down, et cetera. You know, classic cases of depression that we would recognize from today. They, I guess we'd call it melancholy back in those days, which led me to say, gee, I wonder how typical how many how many were out there we didn't talk about it much back then fortunately we do a better job of identifying mental health issues these days and treating them but back then it was you know shoved under shoved under the carpet and so that led me to do a deeper dig on this about well how how did Josiah make it through was did he suffer anything how about the men he served with and so it kind of went a little larger than that and I just found other examples of men that would have quite clearly what we would see today as PTSD, mm -hmm. no, no ifs, ands, or buts, um, and, and just horrific stories about what some of these guys went through. Josiah seems to have gotten through fairly unscathed. I think his faith helped, his family helped, but it is, you're right, it's absolutely incredible when you look at, you know, I'm old enough to remember the post-Vietnam days when, when a lot of the men weren't hired, they were looked down on. It, it, it's incredible to see similar things happen in 1865 and on. And you make the point that the, you know, uh, you think of the Grand Army of the Republic, mm -hmm. this great group that helped veterans, right? It it's basically their VFW, yeah, their right, foreign legion, right. yeah. And they, but they didn't come around until the 1870s. I always assumed that 65, the men got out incredibly yeah. proud of what they had done on mm -hmm. the northern side. They joined this, their version of the American Legion, yep. which was the GAR. Nothing could be further from the truth. These guys wanted to put it behind them. They wanted to be, be done. They wanted to forget about the fact that they've killed men, that they had to burn houses in certain cases. They wanted to forget about the worst of what their experience. And so they didn't join. And, I mean, very little enlistment. I mean, the Army, went, their ranks were cut significantly, almost to pre-war levels, even though we still have the war on the plains. And it wasn't until, the, I think, the 1891 when the GAR hit its peak. I think the assumption always is these guys came in and everything was wonderful. They were welcomed back with open arms. Mm -hmm. They joined these units and, and everything. They went back doing what they were doing, either teaching or farming or whatever it was they were doing. And it wasn't always true. It wasn't always true. Now, your, your day job is as the president of the Pennsylvania Chamber of Commerce. Yes. Um, not, you know, I mean, I mean, I could be wrong, but that doesn't account for your, uh, uh, your interest in the Civil War. Uh, can you, you know, how did you get involved? I mean, maybe your location, you live in central uh, southern Pennsylvania. Uh, how did you get involved? Well, uh, I was born and raised in Philadelphia. So okay. I, I, to this day, I remember it was a trip with my church group it was an altar boy class they put us on a bus i was 11 years old mm -hmm. they took us out to gettysburg yep. to this day i remember the bus pulls in we're next to the old national museum which was in the old brick house that was there we went there we went into the old cyclorama building that has since been torn down the one mm -hmm. that was in ziegler's grove and to this day i can't tell you something grabbed me about yep. that something just got me and you can talk all day about gee you know people say that they sense something they feel something there's something special about that area where so many thousands of men seven thousand men died i i don't know what it is uh but all i know is that from that time on i have been a student of the civil war i mean gettysburg was always close so you'd always go there now i live about a half hour north of the battlefield so it's a much easier drive 
but I lived in Atlanta for a while, so I had the chance to visit a lot of the Western campaigns as well. Right. And I think if you talk to some of the members uh, after this is the, the monthly roundtable meeting where Gene will be presenting, if you talk to our membership, I think everybody remembers that first yeah. trip to Gettysburg mm-hmm. as a kid. I know I certainly do. Yes. Uh, there's, just, I don't know, there's just a feel there, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, every time you go back, there, the, you just – and again, you can't, almost can't put words to it, but there's a feel. I, I completely agree. There's there's something about that place. In fact, there's something about most battlefields. Uh, you know, you get very odd. I was at Cold Harbor. I remember one day, and I, no one else was there. It was a, I was the only one. And when you think about how many men were were killed, wounded in the span of about 15 minutes, I remember going one time to Fort Pillow out near Memphis and being the only one there too, and seeing that. And I've, I've been at this point to most of the Civil War battlefields. And you try and – how does each compare? I get asked that a lot. And Gettysburg's always Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Antietam, as strange as this sounds, might be the prettiest battlefield. It's just a gorgeous setting for it. Vicksburg, to me, is the most physically imposing, physically intimidating of the battlefields because I visited there as part of the research for the book. And I went and stood where the 17th stood before they – went off on their attack on May 22nd. And just looking across that field at what they went against, mm. you, you wonder about the mettle of these men. I haven't been to Vicksburg, uh, but I had the same feeling in Fredericksburg as I stood in, uh, you know, on the Confederate line yes. thinking, what the hell were the Union troops thinking? You know, um, but uh, talk a little bit about it. The, the, your publisher is a prolific publisher yes. of uh, Civil War books, Savas Beatty. Um, you know they they do a lot of military histories. Yes, uh, this isn't just a military history. I mean, you've got uh, obviously the the love story, and you've got um, a number of different elements. Was there any concern in dealing with the publisher and editor uh, about sort of uh, this one being a little different? You know, I have to give these guys a lot of credit because I I was never published before. Mm-hmm. Had approached a couple of. Uh, university presses who said no, surprisingly, because a couple mm. of them to me it was, should have been a no-brainer. Um, finally got to Savas Beatty and Ted Savas, and I, they're, they're tremendous to work with. Um, they've assigned me an, an artist, an author liaison. Renee Morehouse is just phenomenal. Sarah's their marketing manager. The people there are tremendous, and you're right. They put out so many good things in terms of not just the Civil War, but other things as well. But I think they're, they're certainly more known for Civil War period than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I'd argue maybe they're the, the preeminent publisher now in the Civil War side. And the, they're just incredible about getting their authors out there, about highlighting the work of their authors. And I can't say enough good things. As I said earlier, the fact that they were willing it would have been very easy to say this letter's too long and who cares that Jenny went to see her sister in Chicago, but they kept them in. They recognized the importance of that and were willing to work with me to come to a resolution about what we both thought was important to be included in this book. Well, and I, you know, again, I think it's so important to have the letters in there because their relationship largely existed via the, I mean, the, the, you know, after they initially meet, their entire relationship is based on the letters. That's a great point because they were probably had been face to face only for six weeks or so, mm-hmm. and then he goes away for eighteen months, and right. the relationship continues because he courts her through correspondence. Um, is there anything else coming, Gene? I mean, so did the first book give you the bug? I mean, do, do you want to write <laughs> another one? Well, you know, you know, it's funny when I got to the end, it was because it's an ordeal. 
I wanted to make sure that I got it right. Um, it had been 40 years or so since I had to do footnotes, so I had to dredge that up. And, you know, Ted had to say, yeah, you gotta have, these have to be reworked. And I had to ask him for some, some patience because it had been four decades since I had to do footnotes. And um, at that point, I said, boy, I'm glad that's so I'm never doing another book. There, there is a, a thought I have for one if I can get the primary source material that I'm looking at. So there may be something. If it is, it'll be it's something that I've, that I've identified. Uh, Eastern, it's a Pennsylvania topic so hopefully that will that will develop well we're looking forward to it and uh gene i want to thank you so much for sitting down with me uh gene's going to be presenting tonight um and if you want gene's book i highly recommend it a civil war uh captain and his lady love courtship and combat i love those three words together (laughs) uh, from fort donaldson through the vicksburg campaign you can get it at the savis Beatty website or on amazon or anywhere else you can buy a book these days yes uh and uh uh, please do that they're running out though they're running yes the hard bounds running out. so get them now get them now thank you absolutely thank you